and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We are continuing with an ongoing theme of looking at the environment, of looking at global warming, at looking at climate change, understanding the depth of the problem, the depth of the challenge to literally all species on the planet, as well as looking at the upside, the solutions, and they are in uh, great abundance these days, which is good news, and in fact, there is even some legislative change that is on the horizon, and that is going to be the main subject of today's show, the Green New Deal Roundtable, with Bob Hockett and Hazel Henderson will be my guests in the roundtable today. The first thing I'd like to simply propose is to set a context for today's conversation because, in a sense, it is so devastating what it is we're facing that approaching the subject very soberly and with full awareness I think does us all tremendous good. We're very excited about the potential uh, improvements uh, legislatively and all that are moving ahead, but I want to do it with a backdrop of really understanding, and I'm going to read a little bit from uh, uh, the author of The End of Ice, Dar Jamal, who will be a guest on the show uh, relatively soon. And he sums things up uh, rather eloquently in a way that I think will help us see and sense and even feel the seriousness of the situation. And I quote, Earth has not seen current atmospheric CO2 levels since the Pliocene, some three million years ago. Three quarters of that CO2 will still be here in 500 years. Given that it takes a decade to experience the full warming effects of CO2 emissions, we are still that far away from experiencing the impact of all the CO2 that we are currently emitting. Even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions now, it would take another 25,000 years for most of what is currently in the atmosphere to be absorbed into the oceans. Climate disruption is progressing faster than ever and faster than predicted. 17 of the 18 hottest years ever recorded have occurred since the year 2001. The distress signals from our overheated planet are all around us, with reports, studies, and warnings increasing daily. Every single worst-case prediction made by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, about the rise in temperatures, extreme weather, sea levels, and the increasing CO2 content in the atmosphere have fallen short of reality. Countless glaciers, rivers, lakes, forests, and species are already vanishing at a pace never seen before. And all of this from increasing the global mean temperature by, quote, only, end quote, one degree centigrade above pre-industrial baseline temperatures. According to some scientists, it could rise as much as 10 degrees centigrade by the year 
2100. So that is enough of a context, uh, but it is important that the uh, following roundtable discussion bear this very uh, soberly in mind as we make discussion and uh, suggestions as to where we go from here. So it's with great honor and pleasure that I am inviting back Hazel Henderson, who has been a guest on the show numerous times. I'm sure you know her well by now. Green economist, futurist, and one of the people who has been uh, promoting the idea of a solar-based economy literally since the early 1960s. She is the president and founder of Ethical Markets Media, and we have Bob Hockett on, who is one of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's advisors, and it is she who has proposed, boldly proposed, the Green New Deal to Congress, and is very much pioneering and championing that effort. So, great to have you both on. Uh, Bob, if you wouldn't mind starting with a couple of words about uh, what you see as you listen to the words I just read from the end of ICE and how you see the legislative movement beginning to take place in Congress to begin to address some of these rather harrowing facts. Yeah, and thanks so much, Mitch. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's great sure. to be with you again, uh, and especially uh, an honor to be on with uh, with Hazel this time too. Um, so the reading was, of course, very uh, ominous, uh, very powerful, and, and moving. And it, I think it highlights the the degree or the sense in which um, what we're talking about here is a matter of real urgency. This isn't just a kind of an add-on or a sort of a luxury. This is something that you know <laughs> we we're, we have to do it. It's not really a question of whether, but but when. And um, as mm-hmm. many have pointed out, and as I've tried to point out in my own work in the last month or month and a half when it comes to sort of writing about the Green New Deal, um, the costs actually rise enormously, uh, accelerate quite rapidly uh, the longer we wait. So ironically, going big now is actually the cheapest way to go. So you know, mm-hmm. we, we basically Good we point. have to do it, and we might as well do it uh, less expensively, and we might as well do it in a way that actually saves more lives rather than waiting for yet more people to to uh, either to die or to be you know terribly harmed by the the many uh, harms that are wrought uh, by climate change. Yes, yes, yes. Well put. These are such a powerful considerations, and the cost, as you're really implying, Bob, is not just money. That's actually the simplest of them all, but it's costing mm-hmm. the extinction of of, of sentient life. Uh, insects, mm-hmm. for instance, a big report just came out about insects, and few mm-hmm. people really take the time to think about the environmental impact or the f- impact on, say, the food chain uh, of mm-hmm. something as tiny as an ant. But in fact, mm-hmm. uh, bees and the rest of the our ant and our uh, entomological friends are playing a really vital role in it all. Mm-hmm. Hazel mm-hmm. Henderson, my dear Hazel. Uh, yes, hello, and what so a pleasure to, to be on again. The two of you, <laughs> Bob and Hazel, I'm so glad you get to meet mm-hmm. here. Uh, yes, such an honor to meet you, Professor Hockett. I really appreciate oh, the it. The honor is mine, Hazel, thanks. 
So, look, I want to just jump in because I so agree with you about the cost side of it. This is sort of uh, where I came into the whole thing because um, when I was a science policy wonk in Washington um, many, many years ago, probably before you were born, who knows, (laughs) in the late late 70s, I remember as an, uh, an advisor to the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment that we were meeting there under the dome in the Congress, uh, and I was the only non-Nobel Prize winner or president of a high-tech uh, company, and there was one... You were probably uh, the only members. woman as well, Hazel. Oh, yes, I was also the only woman. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing because one of the members of this distinguished advisory group um, became the, uh, the administrator of NASA, uh, Jim Fletcher, and he used to head up a think tank called the Midwest Research Institute, and he told us all at the first meeting, which was 1975, and he said that if the U.S. Congress had subsidized um, solar, wind, energy efficiency, geothermal, all of the renewable energy systems to the same extent that we had already subsidized coal, oil, gas, and nuclear, that the U.S. economy could have been completely run on renewable energy time then, 1975. And so uh, that was really my my six years down there. I was also on the committee at the National Academy of Sciences, and I served on the National Academy of Engineering, uh, their um, Committee on Public Engineering Policy. And I uh, left that six-year stint and wrote a book called The Politics of the Solar Age, which came out in 1981. It was uh, reviewed in the New York Times and all the rest of it. And I was just saying, what we're witnessing here is a a transition uh, from an older energy form. This has happened all through uh, human history, you know, where we we substituted um, wood uh, for oil and coal and whale oil and all of these means. And This is a transition now from the fossil fuel era to what I call the solar age. And I said, it's going to be a big fight. And it's going to go on for many, many years because the incumbent fossil energy sectors and the entire economy at that point was was fueled by fossil fuels, not just, um, you know, uh, automobiles, but also our agricultural systems and pharmaceuticals. Everything was based on fossil fuels. And uh, I, I, I knew that the politics would be absolutely intense because the enormous subsidies, you know, they talk about the subsidies to solar, but the 90% of the subsidies have been to fossil fuels and nuclear power. And so uh, we are still 
fighting, I'm happy to say that it's finally a rearguard action on the part of the fossil fuel industry, but we are still um, in that struggle. And so when I started um, Ethical Markets Media in 2004, I really did it because I realized that the mainstream media could never report on this kind of a massive global transition because all of their advertising came from the fossil fuel industry and nuclear power. And so um, I, I decided, you know, that we would have to do a kind of grassroots uh, linking of small media companies. Uh, and that's, of course, how I connected with Mitchell. And we have uh, that kind of a lateral network around the world now um, of, uh, you know, uh, really upstart, mostly internet-based media companies that are reporting on this great transition. And that's why we put out the Green Transition Scoreboard. We've been doing it every year since 2009. And uh, the reason we started to look at the private investments which were going into solar, wind, and all of the green technologies was because, you know, the um, Climate um, Summit uh, in 2009, which met in Copenhagen, I really knew that was going to be a train wreck, you know, because uh, basically you had the industrial countries who'd done all the polluting and the tier two uh, developing countries saying, well, we're not going to do anything about it because you're the ones that did the polluting and we're the ones that are paying the price, you know, in rising sea levels and everything else. And so we decided we would release our first report there and we tracked uh, a 1.2 trillion that year of, uh, of dollars, US dollars, already invested by private investors, people like me. And so we've tracked it every year and our current report for 2018, um, we're now up to a cumulative 9.3 trillion already in the pipeline. And so what we say to our friends in Washington is, look, if you're still expecting to get money from the coal industry to run your campaigns, you're just on the wrong side of history because there's a wall of money coming at you now from the other side, from the future, from the clean economy, which is growing very rapidly now. So basically, you know, I, I wanted to just get that out there so that um, particularly that Bob Hockett knows how much we support the Green New Deal. Uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, we announced our support almost the next day. And our close allies, the American Sustainable Business Council, that I'm sure you've met by now, they are in Washington and they represent 250,000 small businesses all across the USA who are all in solar, wind, you know, LED lighting, electric vehicle energy chargers, you name it, and energy efficiency, and uh, clean building, green buildings, all of this stuff. And we have been just waiting 
uh, for this kind of, you know, moonshot announcement. Yeah, we've just been waiting. And I think now it's going to just uh, coalesce a a very, very broad transpartisan kind of coalition of these businesses that are already flourishing, the labor unions and all of the NGOs who are working for climate change. Finally, we can all get together. And so it's the most exciting thing that's happened to to me and to (laughs) our group for the last 10 years. (laughs) Truly. And... To just put a finer point on it, Hazel, of course, you're saying that we have a tremendous amount of wind, economic wind, to our back here, Bob, as we sail into the future. And this is unlike you would learn from the present administration that, uh, you know, the whole green movement, etc., is something that's a little blip on the screen. Quite the contrary. It's the current, it's the continued existence of fossil fuels that's a blip on the historical screen. So uh, you, with your background, extensive background in finance and banking, uh, I think you would have particular appreciation of the Green Transition Scoreboard that has, that has calculated, tallied, uh, 9.3 trillion worldwide in green energy efficiency renewable investments. Bob, mm-hmm. your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So a couple things, uh, sort of um, in sort of immediate reaction. I mean, you know, I guess maybe two, you know, two thoughts. Um, let's start with the the notion of modernizing or refurbishing or sort of um, renewing an an economy, right? So the idea at the core of the Green New Deal is a sort of two-part idea, but the two parts kind of fit beautifully together at the present juncture. Um, One does have to do with, of course, saving the planet and saving all forms of, you know, life on the planet that are threatened with extinction. Um, The other piece of the story, of course, is an actual comprehensive refurbishment of the infrastructural the uh, manufacturing uh, and other sort of sector bases of the economy, right? We could do with uh, a real, you know, kind of pick-me-up and a real, again, sort of modernization or sort of reconstruction of the entire economy now, even if the earth were not in peril, right? Now, the thing is, if you're going to, you know, refurbish an entire economy, if you're really going to sort of make yourselves state-of-the-art again, the sort of the number one, uh, sort of technological powerhouse in the world, the number one manufacturing powerhouse in the world, a great infrastructural power and, and so forth, or at least if you're going to be in the first rank of nations, if you want to avoid the sort of atavism of competition, but at least think in terms of sort of living up to certain standards that we hold ourselves to, if you want to be in the first rank, then of course you're going to adopt all the most modern forms of infrastructure, all the most modern forms of technology, all the most modern uh, methods of manufacturing and, and facilities for manufacturing, and as it mm-hmm. happens, what what most modern means now just is green, right? We don't make technologies any longer, any state-of-the-art or new technologies that are sort of reliant on burning stuff in the way that human beings have been doing for a quarter of a million years, um, you know, ever since we lived in caves and we're, you know, sort of roasting mammoth meat or something in caves with smoke billowing out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, modern, modern technology is green technology. So even if you didn't give a toss about the environment, or again, even if the environment itself were entirely safe and non-imperiled, you would still be going green. And so it seems to me then that anybody 
who talks about making America great again or restoring our infrastructure or restoring our manufacturing base or restoring our economy and sort of catapulting it back up to the front rank of, of global economies. You would think that even somebody of that sort would be totally thrilled by the Green New Deal because it really is that. It's a, just an, a massive and comprehensive modernization. But now the second thing is that, um, again, the planet is in peril, and we have been dilly-dallying for a long time. We have been putting off the day of reckoning year after year, decade after decade. Uh, as Hazel, of course, knows quite well, since she was at the very front end of trying to you know, get serious yeah. action on this several decades ago even. Uh, and so there's just all the more reason that means uh, to do this now, in the sense that now it's not even just, we can't even say, well, it's about becoming more modern, it's about becoming more state-of-the-art. It's also a matter of surviving, right? It, this is one of those rare moments in human history where there's a kind of a, as it were, a, a providential uh, coinciding of two imperatives that both converge on exactly the same action plan, exactly the same outcome. The same thing that you have to do, in other words, to address one of these needs is the thing you have to do to address the other of them. And in that sense, yes. not to be too crude about it, but you get kind of a twofer, right, with the Green New Deal. And mm -hmm. it's a twofer with respect to two things, each of which is independently compelling, indeed, independently exactly. urgent. Exactly. And so yes. if, you have, if you have both of them, and it's just, you know, again, doubly compelling, doubly yes. uh, uh, urgent. You know, we this. make this point too, Bob, all the time, you know, that even mm -hmm. if there weren't a climate crisis, we would be doing mm -hmm. this anyway because it's an mm -hmm. evolution of human technology and it's been going on mm -hmm. for thousands of years mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. yeah i think it's, it's sort of embarrassing so that right there's that a we convergence still, basically here that we is... have to burn stuff you know it's a bur it's embarrassing yeah. that we're still burning stuff <laughs> yeah. in the way that we did a quarter of a million years ago in order to make yeah. stuff happen it's ridiculous right and you, you <laughs> listen to the current administration and we futurists call this backing into the future looking through the rearview mirror you know, <laughs> yeah. trying to revive mm -hmm. jobs in the coal industry when there's already <laughs> millions of jobs created, uh, you know, in the North America and Europe in uh, green technologies. I mean, exactly. these are the jobs up, of the installing future. Installing solar panels. Yeah. Among many course. others. Yes. Exactly. And it's mm -hmm. such a no it's an economy waiting to happen, Bob. Yeah. Both of you were saying mm -hmm. it's just waiting to mm -hmm. happen. Um, and it's actually happening you... elsewhere. <laughs> you know? yes, yes, the thing is, we're, yes, we're falling is. behind, right? I mean, who would yes, have thought in, that we would be technologically ways. behind China, right? That we're yes, actually behind yeah. China now, technologically. Whoever would have thought that? Yes, you know, all yes, my exactly. books are published in China, and I've spent uh, quite a lot of time there traipsing around. And mostly when I was uh, working with the Calvert Group of Socially Responsible Mutual Funds, I was on their advisory uh, council for 20 years, developing mm -hmm. all of the screens uh, that we needed to steer capitalism in the right direction. Because mm -hmm. capitalism, you know, is incredibly productive. But if it isn't steered with proper guardrails from, you know, public interest point of view, um, you know, we run into all kinds of problems. And so uh, Calvert and I produced one of the first alternatives to GDP because we knew that, that trying to base the idea of progress totally on money measures and not looking at how bad the, the economic models were that allowed all of this quote-unquote externalizing of costs, which, of course, you know, I always 
I always refer to it as a Freudian slip. You know, it's anything that we don't want to pay attention to on our balance sheet and don't want to take responsibility for, we'll call an externality. And so, you know, basically we put out the Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators in the year 2000 with a big press uh, conference at the National Press Club. And um, basically you could still get that uh, on our Amazon, and we had 12 different aspects of quality of life, some of which could be measured in money, but others, like um, dirty air, um, you have to measure that with parts per million of soot in the air that comes from automobiles and power plants. And so basically, you know, we were about 20 years ahead of our time (laughs) and nobody paid any attention. But uh, now um, it's beginning to resonate. And thank heavens in 2015, uh, we now have the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So on the macroeconomic level now, we can, instead of steering our countries over the cliff, with the old GDP, we can steer them towards sustainability and a green future with the SDGs. So we're pushing that too on the global level. Mm. And in terms of multiple bottom lines, just to add to that, Hazel, is uh, the Bhutanese wonderful idea of the the happiness quotient. And they actually have a measure for happiness. So, uh, and I, I brought that... them to the very first meeting that we did a meeting in Brazil in uh, 2002 called the First International Conference on Quality of Life and Sustainability Indicators. Mm. And I invited, I, was, I helped to organize that, and I invited the people from Bhutan. And what happened is very interesting because, you know, uh, the media piece of all of this is extremely important, you know, because because we all actually live in mediocracies today, you know, whatever ostensible form of government we think we live under. And so we brought the press together and had a big press conference. And then uh, about a year or two after that, I was helping the the European Union to organize a meeting called Beyond GDP. And it was amazing because Reuters, the BBC, Uh, All of these big media companies said, oh, well, if you're not going to cover the gross national happiness, um, we're not interested. (laughs) Really? Yeah, that happened in a matter of a couple of years. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, well, see, editor, uh, media editors really uh, just tend to pull press releases off the wire, you know, and uh, they—they—it's event journalism. See, what what we do is a deep dive. Our, our stuff is what we call slow motion good news. Mm-hmm. Very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're signaling something, Hazel, that's important in respect to Bob. What you are doing. Uh, with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and this wonderful group of especially women uh, now in the Congress, newly elected, which is to essentially create a sea change. And uh, that is a positive sea change. And so what we're talking about, of course, is massive mainstream education and uh, 
understanding that we need a new consensus. So I'm wondering what kind of thoughts in this regard are you and your other team members bringing to the table for the conversation of advancing the Green New Deal to the masses, uh, including well, the mass, I mean, by the way, of the Senate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically what we're doing is we're, we're, we're trying to bring together um, the very rich bodies of thought around uh, the climate rescue movement or the green movement or the environmental rescue movement uh, on the mm-hmm. one hand. Um, and, of course, around previous national economic mobilizations, notably the New Deal uh, and the Second World War mobilization, uh, on the other hand. Um, I think that uh, Hazel's reference to, you know, sort of the need for a kind of a public guidance or um, or a kind of coordination is, is a very important one here. Uh, I typically draw the analogy between uh, the public sector and, say, an orchestra conductor in a case like this. Yes. So the key point is, it's you know, it's, it's the, I think a lot of people sort of overlook this. Uh, and you know, the, the odd thing or the irony is that even orthodox economists ought to be able to understand this because they do have a category of what they call market failures. Now, I view the orthodox account of market failures as being unduly narrow. But even if we were to accept the orthodox account of market failures, the idea of a coordination failure or a collective action problem is perfectly within the core of orthodoxy's understanding of market failures. To give you a typical case in point, um, many, many individuals would find it economical, indeed cost-effective, to draw electric cars around and to choose electric cars over gas-powered cars. But they need, of course, to be able to park them someplace and plug them in and recharge them. And individuals do not have the power to go and just place, you know, recharging stations at various points along the streets. That's something that we have to do together. We have to empower a collective agent to do that on behalf of all of us. Imagine, for example, if municipalities had the wherewithal to install uh, electric power chargers for cars at every parking meter, for example. Uh, That's something that requires, again, some kind of coordinated or collective action. It's not even necessarily necessarily forcing anything on anybody at all. It's just making something available that could not otherwise be made available because, again, individual private agents don't have those particular capacities or powers to kind of coordinate everybody else. So, you know, it's a crucial point, I think, that in order to do this right, we have to sort of coordinate it. We have to, well, uh, we have to, we have to, we actually have to do this collectively first, right? It's not a matter yeah, of yes. the collectivity kind of ramming anything down anybody's throat. It's a matter of the collectivity making possible, making it possible for individuals to do things that they can't do now. Exactly yes. right. And, you well know, the, the example that uh, right now is very interesting, and um, I would have to say that, uh, full disclosure, I'm an investor in a company right now that manufactures a solar-powered electric vehicle chargers, which do not require permitting and do not require digging in the street and do not use dirty fossil electricity from the grid. And so basically, uh, what has been holding up 
um, electric vehicles is that everybody's been fretting about what they call range anxiety. Oh, dear, you know what would happen uh, because I can't find a place to recharge my car. So everybody's been focusing on battery technologies, and that, and that's great, you know. But the whole point is that uh, right now municipalities like the city of New York and many cities in California are buying these electric chargers that you can just roll off the back of a truck. They fit into a parking place. They have a battery so that the solar charging electricity is absolutely ready to go. And so I see these being sold in the in the marketplace to all of the hotel and motel chains, to every gas station. Just have one of these in your parking uh, area, and you can make money out of it and pay for it in no time at all. So some of these things, that this um, orchestration that you're talking about, which is so important, uh, Bob, um, some ways we're finding around it, um, you know, with trade associations and actually using media as the coordinating thing, you know, in terms of kind of um, advertising. And so there's so many ways to do this, and it, it's just busting out all over. Indeed it is. I want to let everybody know that uh, you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every week on radio as well as on community TV here in New York City every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Please visit our website at www.abetterworld.tv and become a member of our community receive our weekly free newsletter it's on the right of the website and we'd love to have you part of our community and family today as you have noticed we are talking about the green new deal with robert hockett and hazel henderson two favorite people of mine who are dedicated to a very positive outcome to address the sorely needed majorly needed uh, issues surrounding global warming, and we're talking about different ways to bring this about into public view as well, of course, as to actualize it, to take the steps necessary that make economic and ecologic sense. After all, the root of the word from the ancient Greek is the same, and I don't think that's any mistake. But in fact, on that note, Bob, uh, Hazel and I, uh, for different periods of time, have been making the business case for a kind of a Green New Deal of, of creating essentially a, a green economy. And as mm -hmm. each of us here have been talking about, the number of jobs far exceed the current conventional fossil fuel-based economy. And, of course, you're helping to spearhead this through Congress with the Green New Deal. And I just would love to hear you perhaps say a little bit more about what you have in mind and what it is you are sharing with AOC about uh, the practicalities of this. Well, so I'm, uh, as, as, as I mentioned to you before, when we chatted before, Mitch, I'm part of a large team, and I think all of us are more or less agreed um, that essentially this is a great opportunity um, finally to 
do that sort of rebuilding that we really should have commenced uh, in early 2009 at the latest in response uh, to the 2008 crash, right? So as yeah. you know, um, good jobs in America have been sort of disappearing at a rather rapid clip since the late 19, maybe the mid-1970s. Uh, the overwhelmingly greater part of the population now, when it's employed at all, is employed in uh, jobs that do not pay living wages or that barely pay living wages. And hence, um, uh, most Americans, I shouldn't say most, but a large numbers, many scores of millions of Americans uh, seem to have to work more than one job or to have multiple jobs within one family just in order to make ends meet. And that's partly because we've sort of uh, outsourced, you might say, or just sort of offloaded uh, our sort of primary sort of infrastructural and, and, and manufacturing sorts of work uh, elsewhere. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, to bring back, I mean, to do uh, a real Green New Deal that really does uh, amount to a kind of a latter-day rendition of the original New Deal and Second World War mobilizations is a way of restoring prosperity to Americans below the top of the distribution. At the same time, we want to ensure that unlike the first New Deal, this Green New Deal does indeed inure to the benefit of those who have been traditionally excluded uh, from American society and from the American economy. The New Deal in some ways tried to redress imbalances of that sort, but these, you know, the 1930s and 40s were more racist times uh, in America. And furthermore, uh, President Roosevelt did have to make compromises with Southern Democrats at that time in order to keep the New Deal going. And those, you know, yesterday's Southern Democrats are today's Southern Republicans, which is to say that they were bigots. So we would yes. like the new, you know, the Green New Deal to be much more uh, ethnic, ethnically egalitarian and, and sort of geographically egalitarian, even than the original New Deal was. And we would like to put into place permanently, right, the, the right to a well-paying, living wage-paying job in this country and the right to universal health care for all and the right to debt-free education in the way that the New Deal itself was meant to do in its second guise right before Roosevelt died. Remember, there was a second Bill of Rights uh, that President okay. Roosevelt was going to push. Um, and then, owing to his untimely death, which was in turn owing to the, the, the immense stresses of leading the Second World War effort, um, he died, you know, just a couple of months into his fourth term, uh, and that uh, Second Bill of Rights was simply dropped. So we view this as another opportunity to pick up that Second Bill of Rights, too, and to put that at the core, because ultimately mm. we're talking about climate justice, and climate justice embraces economic justice, economic even if it's justice, not exhausted yeah. by economic justice. Yeah. Yes, it's so so true. And I mean, the reform well, well of the health care system. Um, I mean, the health care system, as you both know, is, you know, twice as costly um, than mm -hmm. any other health care system in the world. We don't get any better outcomes. And mm -hmm. if we move to a single payer system, uh, it would cut the cost. The cost now is all of these intermediaries, the insurance companies have to pay their shareholders. They have to have rooms full of people to deny people claims. You know, it is an, an incredible bureaucracy. And then all the money they spend on advertising these weird um, kind of patent medicines. You know that uh, uh, you know they they say, well, you know, it'll take care of your heartburn, but the contraindication is it might kill you. You know, I mean, it's insane, absolutely insane. So going to the single payer system. Uh, in and of itself is going to save trillions. Truly.
True. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And I, I'd like to bring man. up yeah. the uh, in the context of a green economy. Although I, I so appreciate your point here, Hazel. In fact, I just came from Mount Sinai Hospital and had an extended conversation with the doctor there, who is a wonderful young buck who wants to help people and realizes that we really have uh, a disease care, a disease sustenance system, much more than yes. we have a health care system. And yes, he's got a, exactly. a load in oh, his ear so from sick. me about that. But, uh, <laughs> but I really wanted to invoke uh, the the words and the work of Van Jones and the Green Collar mm-hmm. Economy, who yes. he brought this up by 10, 15 years ago. So, so much of what uh, has been called for, Bob, has been called for by many of us literally for decades. It's been on the books, it's been in the media, but there has been truly no movement or so little movement, mm-hmm. ironically, since Richard Nixon, Republican, with yep. the Clean Air Act yep. and the Clean, the clean mm-hmm. Water Act. You know, isn't that a joke on yep. us all? And now we look at the yep. Republican Party. So I'm, I'm coming around to the idea of what uh, are you all thinking and planning in terms of languaging the new legislation so that you are going to be making a bipartisan arrangement and agreement and interest in this bill. Yeah, two things, right? I mean, it's it's very fairly straightforward in a way. Um, One of the things that made the original New Deal so successful uh, politically as well as economically uh, was precisely the fact that the New Deal had projects in literally every congressional district of the country, right? Every Mm, district was benefiting. Now, that was – Smart politics, of course, for one thing, it it, it tended to make the New Deal more sustainable politically. But even apart from that kind of instrumental, because everyone benefited. In short, everyone benefited economically. So even apart from that instrumental reason that would have been given for it, it's also just a matter of democracy or justice, right? It's just the right thing to do. So our view is by doing the right thing in that particular way, right? We're going ultimately to get buy-in from Republicans as well as uh, Democrats, right? Uh, The second thing we're Mm -hmm. pointing out is that many Republicans themselves seem to be excited about the idea of revamping the nation's infrastructure. I mean, there's even this guy with a funny red cap in the White House who who sort of claims to be interested in that. Um, (laughs) The the difference between us and him, of course, is that we'll actually be delivering on it, right? We have yet to see any sort of infrastructure proposals made by this guy in the White House, but we plan on actually delivering on it. And we're, we're quite convinced that when people actually see what we have in contemplation here, they're going to be jumping aboard. And note you know, how the defense industry does exactly this, right? The defense industry seems to have something going on in just about every key congressional district, which is one reason that the country keeps spending the many billions of dollars that it does every year on defense outlays. Imagine if Absolutely. we use the same strategy yeah. for something productive right, rather than destructive. Yeah. Yeah. But you're so right, Bob, that Republicans, that we know hundreds of Republicans who just want to jump on board this thing. Uh, I wrote a paper, um, right, uh, which came out uh, just about the time of the election, called Greening Trump's Infrastructure Plan. 
<laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I mean, basically all our uh, constituents are saying, yeah, let's get going, you know, let's shift the subsidies. And so, the, you know, the energy is coming very heavily from uh, Republicans in the private sector who are small mm-hmm. business owners and yeah, also yeah. from cities. Uh, as you know very well, if the federal level is stuck the way it is right now, you know, with all of this gridlock, um, the cities just pick up the slack. And uh, they've been moving everything forward, and so have many states, as you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the lucky things about our federal system, really. That, mm-hmm. uh, and, of course, the grassroots um, efforts that really drive it. And what we've been looking at in the last few years with our Green Transition Scoreboard is the extent to which now that mainstream finance is absolutely terrified. They know Mm -hmm. that they have to shift and they're boxed in every way you look. They're boxed in by the students pushing for, uh, for disinvestment, from fossil fuels, from the portfolios of uh, of their universities, then there's our folks, the socially responsible ethical investment movement. Um, now worldwide, it's about 23 trillion um, in ethical uh, kind of funds and uh, portfolios. Quite successful without fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you have fintech coming up from underneath, eating their lunch. You know, mm-hmm. with crowdfunding and all of the stuff, peer-to-peer lending, all of the stuff that's going on that's disrupting the, the old banking system. And then you have the finance ministers now, since the, green, uh, since the sustainable uh, development goals were passed by 93 countries um, in 2015, all these UN members, they're getting it now from their finance ministers. I mean, Mark mm-hmm. Carney, you know, um, who uh, chairs the Bank of England. Uh, He's the Mm -hmm. one pushing them and saying, come on Mm -hmm. guys, you know, you have got to have a green transition in finance because all of your algorithms are out of date. You've got to take a look and see what the valuation is. And I, I did a paper on this because, you know, these big pension fund managers who manage trillions of people's 401ks and what have you, they haven't unpacked those algorithms for years. And mm-hmm. uh, I did a paper saying, look, uh, can you look at your algo and see the extent to which you have valued your fossil reserves as fuel or mm-hmm. as feedstock? And if mm-hmm. you uh, revalue them as feedstock, then you won't lose so much money and you uh, can keep them in the ground for further use and we don't need to burn it. I mean, it's a terrible waste to burn a resource. Mm. Right. It because really is. An important yeah, point absolutely. So I've, gotten, I've learned it. of from you. And, it, you know, Bob, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. It, it changes everything. I never thought about accountants being so instrumental mm-hmm. in world change until Hazel taught mm-hmm. me that, that point. <laughs> They're my Your buddies, thoughts. the global accounting <laughs> people, because they now have their six forms of capital. And um, all of the new accounting now is you're measuring the performance of a company by the extent to which it either enhances or degrades 
all six forms of capital. And they are, of course, finance capital. Then there's built capital. That's the factories and plant and equipment. Then there's intellectual capital. And as you know, in advanced economies, they're 80% intellectual, intangible capital. Then there's human capital. You know, uh, the the, the um, expertise of your employees, social capital, and that is all of the infrastructure um, which was uh, built 30 years, 40 years ago, and is now, you know, being degraded. We have to to fix it up again. And then, of course, there's natural capital. And that's the proper way to do the accounting. And once we internalize all of those uh, different factors and have full-spectrum accounting, um, this will steer naturally in, in a healthier direction. So organic bless the accountant. Yes. I, I tell you, this was a real revelation for me. Bob, does that <laughs> accord with your understanding of of what's possible? And I, I one of the reasons I was so looking forward to this conversation with the two of you is that this kind of age old wisdom and experience that Hazel has can inform the uh the the novelty, if you will, of the new you know bucks in Congress who do not have this kind of grounding in understanding the economics. Of course, you do, and that's so. Thankfully, you're there on the team. So yes, we're so grateful to you, Bob. Two two <laughs> things to say about um, two things to say about accounting. I think right. The, the first um, Hazel was getting at, I think, quite quite effectively, right, which is that. Basically, how you account is how you see, right? You don't see yes. what you don't have accounting categories for. Right. So it's very easy, right, to overlook very important things if you don't accommodate them within your accounting categories. And, of course, it's equally easy to include things that ought not to be included or ought not or to call be them by the right. You want to call them by the right name as, as well. important if they don't fit under your accounting category. So that's the first point. The second point mm-hmm. is, um, you know, a lot of the problem, I think most of the problems that you find in orthodox economics, um, the same ec- orthodox economics that tells us we can't do a Green New Deal because, quote unquote, how will you pay for it? <laughs> most right. of the errors, right, with which orthodox economics are just rife yes. are, 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 are sort of stem from the fact that contemporary orthodox economics does not understand accounting, does not recognize the critical Absolutely. importance of accounting in economics mm, itself. A classic case in point, here's a very easy case, for example. If you're ever in Union Square in New York City, you'll walk by at one point at 14th, about 14th and uh, Vanderbilt or so. There's this ridiculous clock up there that's, you know, that some uh, ridiculous right-wing organizations oh, yeah. put up there. The and they, they call it the, 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 the public yeah. debt clock. Now, here's what I always <laughs> tell people. That whenever anybody mentions right, the public debt clock, I always say, oh, you mean the private wealth clock? And they at first look confused, <laughs> but as soon as they think about it for a moment, they realize, oh, yeah, that's right, right? All of these treasury securities that are out there outstanding, which are, right, the, the financial instrument counterpart to our public debt, 
are things that people hold in their portfolios. They're the only really safe asset out there. They're even used as the benchmark to price every other financial asset. In other words, you wouldn't even have uh, national uh, capital markets, let alone global financial markets, without U.S. Treasuries. So important are they, in fact, that back when it looked like the Clinton administration was going to pay off the entirety of the national debt back in 2000, the financial markets completely freaked out because they thought, how are we going to have financial markets without U.S. Treasury securities out there? So, you know, Orthodox economics. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so you know, economic so orthodoxy completely overlooks all of that stuff because they overlook accounting itself. Uh, and if you don't overlook accounting, then you're less likely to sort of ignore or fail to see things that are of critical importance. And then, furthermore, if you get your accounting categories right, if you get the right categories in there, then you're tracking and measuring exactly what needs tracking and measuring. Exactly. Yes. 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 So, <laughs> Very well, well said. Very well put. <laughs> you know, you have to call things for what they are, and it takes a yeah. visionary, it takes a little imagination to see that, you know, as Hazel was saying and as you were saying, you know, instead of seeing it as a debit, see it as, in this mm-hmm. case of uh, the oil industry, as a feedstock. Oh, stock. you know, and there was so another it changes point. everything. Yeah, there's another thing I wanted to ask you, Bob, and that is that um, over the years, um, all of this debate that began with Senator Markey um, way Mm -hmm. back, you know, on uh, trying to do emissions trading and all of that, Mm -hmm. and many of us, you know, talked about, well, it was much better really to tax pollution, Mm And um, mm-hmm. I um, uh, worked with a polling firm, a, pub- a public interest polling firm, and um, mm-hmm. we did polls um, on the budget and how people mm-hmm. wanted to raise uh, money in the budget. And we put a category in there, which wasn't used uh, by other pollsters. Um, how about pollution taxes? And it always, um, it, 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 we would get over 80%, and these were, you know, scientific surveys, people love pollution taxes. And I kept on saying to all of those people, you know, who were trying to do that emissions trading bill all those years ago, Mm -hmm. saying, please don't call it a carbon tax. Call it a pollution (laughs) tax. We want to tax all pollution, not just carbon. And guess what? Mm -hmm. You get huge support from the public. Because mm-hmm. they know exactly mm-hmm. what pollution is, what it and they want mm-hmm. it taxed, mm-hmm. and you get much bigger revenue from it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know the whole mm-hmm. idea of having it revenue neutral and then reimbursing <coughs> all citizens uh, for the tax mm-hmm. collected. So that would be a bumper revenue uh, earner, mm-hmm. and it would be enormously popular. Now, just mm-hmm. change the word. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. What about well, I mean, I'm this, so this glad is, you brought that well, up, Hazel, because when I look at the entire, you know, view of of where we are sort of politically with something like a democratically founded, by and large, uh, you know, Green New Deal, um, and as a wordsmith. I feel particularly sensitive to the use of the word. So you're saying about pollution, I think, mm-hmm. is powerful. In fact, I've been promoting the idea, especially in light of 
what are called climate deniers. That's a strange phrase. I don't really know what it means, but we know what it implies. Uh, you know, there's no climate. That's right. I'm denying the climate. <laughs> but let's move on from there. Um, just call it pollution. All we're doing is is addressing pollution, everyone. And in that light, everyone agrees that there is a serious pollution problem. And we know among ourselves that if you correct the pollution problem, you will be, in effect, also dealing with global warming directly. Right. And, you and know, so, so much is in a name, you know. Yeah, steering so your light, economy in a healthy direction. But, you know, this yes. is, you see, uh, I began, uh, Bob, as a a community activist in New York City and I started a group in the 60s called Citizens for Clean Air and basically what we were saying is that you know we couldn't we had to do something about air pollution and almost immediately we had block captains in all five boroughs everybody yes you know let's get rid of this pollution and back in those days it was every brownstone house in the city of New York had its own little incinerator that cooked the garbage and made all of this smoke, you know. And, of course, there were automobiles, and I joined up with Ralph Nader, and we had the, uh, you know, the, uh, the campaign to make General Motors responsible because we realized that Detroit was really responsible for about one-third of all New York City's air pollution. And so I, I know from personal experience that um, whether you're talking air pollution or water pollution or any kind of pollution, you immediately get um, the, the public with you. Yeah. So this is another another area in which the reactionaries have been sort of ahead of us, right? So, um, you know, there, there, there are two basic areas in which I think they've been ahead of those of us who are sort of part of the progressive movement. The first is they've discovered long before we did, it seems, uh, that you can go ahead and engage in deficit spending and not run into problems, right? That basically a country like ours can actually do a, get by get very far uh, on debt with before any sort of inflationary impact begins to hit. So they've right. of course been spending like crazy, literally many trillions of dollars over the last several decades, always on unproductive and sterile expenditures, basically wars and tax cuts for rich people. Right? Yeah. It's about mm -hmm. time that the progressives learn that. Right? The second thing is they do a lot on basically propagandistically figuring out just the right terms or names to use on things. Right? Yeah. They started calling the yeah. estate tax the death tax, and then all of a sudden. Oh, right. <laughs> the death tax became unpopular. We should do the yes. same thing on that score as well, right? And calling something That's a pollution right. tax, I think, is a good idea. And again, calling the private, I mean, the, the public debt clock, the private wealth clock is another such idea, That's right? We right. should systematically exactly. find right. the right words to use. Uh, on the wealth tax, too, right? There, there's a lot of talk about a wealth tax. We shouldn't call it that, it seems to me. We should call it an excess wealth tax. Um, because, yes. of course, typically, yeah. or something like that, yes. typically it, it doesn't kick in, right, until you get past. Right. Your second, you know, your second or third trillion dollars or whatever, right? Yes, so I you know, know, it's not you're, it's not like you're taxing all wealth, right? You're taxing these crazy surpluses yeah. over right, right. A, a decent amount, right? Yes, so, that's anyway, excellent yeah, suggestion. An excess, mm. excess wealth and tax. On that yeah. same mm -hmm. note, that's why I'm thinking, and I'd love to hear what both of you have to say, because what we're looking at largely is an infrastructure redo, which is 
what the fellow with the funny red hat in the White House is saying anyway. So in that way, we're kind of going with the stream instead of against it. And Mm -hmm. we're doing all that you were saying before, Bob, that anything that we would be doing would be sort of green and energy efficient anyway, because that's the nature of modern technology. So I'm thinking that if we were to if we were to kind of somewhat recalculate the languaging here so that it's not throwing up, no pun intended, red flags about the Green New Deal, uh, but we really Mm -hmm. focused on its infrastructure development, just as, of course, Mm -hmm. FDR did, um, we would be getting a lot more traction than if we're championing, even though the three of us may and many of our colleagues and friends, the green part of it, that in a sense we mm-hmm. know is in, inherent in a new infrastructure mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. Well, we exactly. had a report um, in our Green Transition yeah. scoreboard, I think it was 2013, uh, on green bonds uh, for financing green infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. going along very nicely. I mean, calling it green mm-hmm. infrastructure is the the way to capture that. But I think mm-hmm. that, you know, when I was advising the Green Party in Germany, when they were getting going in the 1980s, um, their slogan, which I just loved, was that we are neither left nor right. We are ahead. And they just <laughs> claimed the future. Yes, and perfect. I would love to see um, uh, AOC and all of her wonderful allies uh, pick that one up because it's mm-hmm. time to just put that whole Cold War left-right thing, put it to bed. It's dead. Mm-hmm. It is dead. Long and dead. most of the American mm-hmm. population agrees that it's dead. That's why mm-hmm. there is an overwhelming number of independently registered voters these days. They're not Democrat. They're not Republicans. They're not even Democrats. They're independent. You know, I think that we should be following that trend. Um, What are your thoughts? And I'm wondering about your team and whether are you having these kinds of conversations? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. it's again, it's a, it's a large team and a growing team. Um, and yeah. we're all, yeah, we're talking about all of these things constantly. I mean, one a really critical feature of the Green New Deal, I think, thus far, that has thus far sort of gotten insufficient attention, is another parallel uh, that it has with the original New Deal. And that is that it's not mm-hmm. all sort of embodied in one big statute like the Obamacare statute or something in one oh, fell yes. swoop. I know where you're the, going. With right. This, the original yeah. New Deal, right, it unfolded over a 10 year period. It was a, a, a grand national deliberation. And it was was very experimental and we tried various things and things that worked we scaled up and things that didn't work we discarded and we basically you know kind of democratically got there together over the course of a decade and we view the green new deal in the same way it's going to be a a a grand exercise in deliberative democracy and participatory democracy everybody's ideas are going to be listened to everybody should be contributing at the local level at the state level regional and the federal level um and that's in a certain sense that's already begun because we're this you know our, our 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 numbers are growing, and the conversation itself is is duly expanding in consequence. Great. Well, people can see their, themselves in it, you see, and can see the way they can yeah. play. I mean, I was listening to some uh, uh, nuclear power guy um, th- today um, on C-SPAN, and he was saying, oh, yes, he says, I'm all for the Green New Deal, and I'm sure that we can lobby them to, to, to have nuclear power. And, of course, I'm saying, oh, no, you 
will never oh, get away boy. with that because uh, <laughs> it's the cheapest and stupidest form of boiling a <laughs> kettle of water that was ever created by humans. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, talk about. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I I used to always say that the only safe nuclear power plant was the one 93 million miles away. That's the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, sun the sun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very funny. That's very funny. And indeed, we're going to be dealing with event, um, organizations such as ALEC. And I don't know oh, if yeah. you have all dealt with that, Bob, with the with the team and with uh, AOC. But the American Legislative Exchange Council operates primarily, as I understand, on local and state levels. And even though they operate somewhat federally, they have masterminded control of state legislators. And, uh, you know, I'm just bringing this up because, right, it's terrible because I'm just looking at this, kind of soberly looking at the type of entrenched um, resistance that I'm afraid and upset that we will be dealing with. And, of course, the Koch brothers are the main pocketbooks behind ALEC and fossil foil of uh, fossil yeah. foil. <laughs> yes, fossil uh, fuel. But, you know, um, some of this a campaign um, to get companies to peel off. I think that, that several yes. companies have had yes. to cease funding it because of the uh, shareholders. They were embarrassed and, at their, their Yeah, their customers. Yeah. yeah. So so I think yeah. that that's the best way to beat that one back, you know, is, is mm-hmm. just to say, yeah. hey, stop, you know, spending my shareholders' assets, you know, funding mm-hmm. this awful yeah. organization. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you both are economists of different sorts, which I think is fantastic, and I, I love learning about the accounting methods and the orthodox econ- economics perspective and all that. And I am more related to the solutions that are born from brilliant technologies, no-carbon, low-carbon mm-hmm. technologies that of which there are now a plethora, and I am sort of, mm-hmm. uh, at a better world, a magnet for these, which I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for. And uh, so I look at this through the guise of that, and I have, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned to you both, uh, very much reliant upon the heavy-duty work of Paul Hawken in his latest book, mm-hmm. Drawdown, which yeah. so mm-hmm. brilliantly and scientifically um, prioritizes what we need to do on uh, this is on the on the on the climatic you know global warming side of it all uh, what mm-hmm. we need to do in order to do our best to stem the tide of the melting ice caps and all else that is accruing on that side mm-hmm. your thoughts yes, i'm wondering about the discussions yes, going on in the group in your in your advisory group about yes, these things. Paul I know you're involved in the economic side, of course, and I think it's fantastic. But how about on the literal technical side, technological side? Well, so, yeah, so there, you know, we're we're sort of just getting started, but but maybe needless to say, there are many many technical ideas being floated, um, and many many technical experts being consulted, um, and indeed people, even people who aren't famous, who you know we haven't already heard of, are sending in ideas um, at this point, yes. just because they're so excited now that it looks as though there's at long last yeah. a real prospect 
of being listened yes. to um, and consulted with, right? And this is indeed God, part of so that good. grand national deliberation that should be unfolding over the next decade, right? Part of that deliberation is indeed the technical uh, deliberation, right? The discussion about mm -hmm. what actually to pursue, what's going to work best, what what's to going do, to, and, what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like in the original New Deal, right? Many people had many great yes. ideas, um, including technical ideas. You know, should this dam be built here? Should it be built there? Exactly. When the TVA decides to electrify the Tennessee Valley, how should it go about doing that, right? What kinds of power should it use? Where should it locate the plant? Lots of technical discussion of that kind went into the uh, building of of or the um, elaborating and unfolding of the original New Deal, yes. and that's happening with the green one as well. And so maybe, yes. maybe again, needless to say, a I lot of technical really contributions. You know, there's yes. one thing that's a simple stroke of the pen thing, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that is to refund the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment, which I advised yeah. for yeah. six years. Because, you see, mm -hmm. what we did at OTA was to prepare talking points for members of Congress on all mm -hmm. of these technological choices. And we would lay these things out. And, of course, mm -hmm. we were lobbied by all kinds of corporate special interests, you know, to pay attention to this technology and not that one and so on and so forth. But we just went to all of the experts in all of the best think tanks and universities and uh, NGOs and all over the country. And uh, basically, there's a big move now. There's 40 members of Congress that um, have signed a call, a dear colleague letter, uh, for just simply refunding OTA. It, it is still authorized. And the best person to really lead the parade um, is the former congressman from uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where I used to live, um, uh, Rush Holt. And he's now president of AAAS, and he's kind of leading the charge. So I, I would get him on board. And uh, just with a stroke of the pen, you can get OTA up and running again. Um, most of them ended up at the University of Maryland. College Park. A lot of them ended up in GAO. But putting that thing together um, is the best way you can kind of assess all of these technologies, which will be coming at you from all directions. Left, right, and, and a lot right of them ways. are junk, um, and you've got to know the good ones. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like very good, you know, quite sound advice. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of wheels um, that we don't really even have to reinvent. We simply have to re-roll, right? Just sort of yep. put them back yeah. on the car, as it exactly. were. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I think exactly. OTA is a classic case in point. Right. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to absolutely. see that because, boy, you know, the members of Congress felt so foolish. Um, with mm. that Zuckerberg hearing on Facebook, <laughs> and they all yeah. made fools of themselves because they didn't even understand how they See, now, uh, we at OTA would yes. have made sure that they were buttressed mm. with the facts they needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's too yeah. much for their individual staffs to handle. I mean, oh, they I'm can't really do gathering it. now. No. Right? No they way. Can't do it. Yeah. You know? And again, Bob, you need some kind of coordination. You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is a funny question, of course, but um, taking the temperature of the current status of the and disposition of the Green New Deal right now, it's been 
launched uh, relatively recently. It is gaining mm-hmm. traction, and I'm just wondering what your sense is of it and when it might come to its next level of, of maturation. What, what yeah. needs to take place from here to there? Yeah. So the first, the next thing that's going to happen is, as you as you probably have read, um, in a, a kind of a, a, a stunt that's sort of typical of him, uh, Mitch McConnell apparently still plans to bring up um, the Green New Deal resolution for a vote uh, in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, in in hopes of embarrassing um, those who are behind it, uh, or exploiting, or sort of showing some sort of deep division, you know, between Democrats yeah. within the Senate uh, over the matter. Um, he tried the same stunt two years ago in connection with Medicare for All. Uh, it didn't get him anywhere. Basically, all of the Democrats voted present. Um, this time around, I mm-hmm. suspect either they will all vote present or they will all vote in favor of the resolution, and we'll see which of uh-huh. those goes. But once that stunt is out of the way, and that might be by the end of this week, it's hard to tell at this at this juncture, oh, but the, uh-huh. the rumors I'm hearing is that it might be fairly soon. Once that stunt is sort of past us, um, the next thing to do uh, is actually to start working up some actual legislation on some actual plans that could begin to be put into place right now where we might actually get Republican support as well. Um, And I'm, as we talked about before, I'm pretty hopeful about that. So if we could, you know, find some of the stuff, if we could start with um, some specific measures that would get both Democrat and Republican sign on almost immediately, then we could actually begin to do some of the New Deal things even before the Mm -hmm. 2020 election. But we're also thinking that our big, massive pushes are probably going to come after the 2020 election because we actually do anticipate widening our majority in the House, um, taking a majority back uh, in the Senate and retaking the White House uh, as well. And at that point, it really will be a case of Katie bar the door. door. I mean, we're, yeah. we're really talking about, you know, something like Roosevelt's 100 Days. You know, there's going to be real action mm-hmm. It'll be real fast. Great. Well, I yeah. think that you're That's dead very right, exciting. Bob, that um, basically to focus, on, to focus on infrastructure and cities, mm-hmm. because yeah. this is where infrastructure money gets spent, and mm-hmm. you have a lot of bipartisan uh, kind of city um, governance where, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that they will go for where they'll make money. Like, for example, mm-hmm. simple things like they did in Britain um, with their mm-hmm. Green Investment Bank, where they mm-hmm. gave money, they gave grants so that the local city treasurer didn't have to worry about where the money would come from shifting mm-hmm. all of the lighting to LEDs and save mm-hmm. a packet of money. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing with retrofitting um, municipal buildings, uh, doing mm-hmm. stuff like that, um, you, mm-hmm. you're bound to get a bipartisan, um, you know, backing Agreement. for that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things I've been I've been getting quite a few calls from city government officials uh, asking if I can help them sort of think through or sort of brainstorm together on some projects that they can um, seek funding to undertake right away. And my guess is that if we had a really good balance of cities, some of which are, you know, have Republican mayors and others of which have Democratic mayors, and we could get them all together to sort of brainstorm together on, you know, the kinds of things that could be done fairly quickly at the city level if only there were federal funding available or if the feds were willing to purchase municipal revenue bonds that were sort of earmarked to those particular projects. 
I would bet you we could get significant appropriations out of the present Congress, even with oh, the I, Republican I agree now. What, what I would do, my dream thing would be to get Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Indiana oh, to, yeah. to set up a committee for you. And mm-hmm. um, and then, um, you know, the, the people who um, do the green bonds, they're our friends mm-hmm. based in London. But green mm-hmm. bonds now, every time a green bond, mostly municipalities have been floating them, they're always mm-hmm. oversubscribed two or three times. Everybody loves yeah. green bonds in their 401k, mm-hmm. in their pension mm-hmm. plans. You know, the big, mm-hmm. you know, our company is a, partner as a member of the UN Principles of Responsible Investing, and uh, Mm -hmm. they are mostly the world's pension funds, and there's about $60 of assets under management right now worldwide, and they're pushing the whole green bond thing, and right here in St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest city in North North America, our mayor uh, um, uh, and and I have been working on um, getting a green bond where we can look at climate um, resilience because she is co-chairing a group of all of the mayors in all of the little municipalities in Florida who are dealing every day, actually twice a day every time the tide comes in, with street flooding. And I, I, she, we had a conference here, and people would say, well, how can you really get people's attention about uh, sea level rise and climate change? She said, look, it's easy. I talk to them about infrastructure, dealing with the sewerage system, and all I have to say is, look, your toilets are not going to flush, okay? <laughs> That does uh-huh. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. Getting you need. down to it, right? Yeah. Getting down to it. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this yeah. we're hovering around the big question here and providing some answers too to the question that uh, I know I remember hearing Fox News posing, I believe it was, to you, Bob, recently. Well, how the heck are you going to fund it? You know, the fake yeah, question. Yeah. Well, I mean, the answers yeah. are so numerous. I mean, uh, I like looking yes. at the defense contractors. And, you know, I like looking at the military budget. I like well, looking also, at moving decimal points across yeah. the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. It's pretty easy. Well, you know, that's but, why we produced this TV special, which we uplink twice on a satellite to the PBS system. About half the PBS stations have pulled it down. It's called the Money Fix. And it's simply the politics of money creation and credit allocation. And we Uh point out that all governments print money you know, they call it quantitative easing or whatever. But the whole thing yeah. is, what do they do with it after they print it? Do they give it to exactly. their friends in the big banks uh, so that it'll quote-unquote trickle down to Main Street where it never arrives? Or do we right. use it to fund the future, this exciting new green future? Indeed. I mean, Indeed. you know... So we talk all the time about the Green New Deal, and um, our friends in London at Positive Money have a new book out called The Green uh, Bank of England, Um, and they've actually got the Bank of England to admit how money is created. 
where mm-hmm. where yeah, well I that's a, that's a, we'll do that on another show, shall we, Mitchell? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, indeed. And I did okay. want to bring up though because there is a provision. No, I very much like that, Hazel. Uh, bring up the provision that I saw in the text of public banking, and that happens to be a favorite subject of of Hazel's and mine. Yes. And very friendly with uh, a lovely Ellen woman Brown. named Ellen Brown, who yeah. who has gone far in bringing that forward. And I was so impressed, Bob, that she is you the have chair that founder embedded, of it. Yeah. That you have that embedded in the text of the proposition of the resolution. So that I was, was one of the reasons. Speak a little that, yeah. bit. Yeah, that, that. that was one of the reasons I realized that the Green New Deal that you guys had really been thinking it through, because, yeah. of course, we have to go back to um, more democratic forms of um, banking, banking. And, and credit creation. Truly. Mm-hmm. Bob, could you just say a few words about that? We're winding down, so yeah. the money thing is an important part of the whole, of course. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, so Ellen uh, is indeed a good friend of mine. We've been sort of compatriots um, working in sort of similar territory on similar causes for a good long time. And we've been allied. Oh, great. I think great. Maybe for the last decade or so. Um, Wonderful. So, uh, Excellent. Yeah. And a lot of my scholarly work, a lot of the writing that I do is about how essentially the financial system should be viewed as a public-private franchise arrangement with the Perfect. sovereign public as the yeah. franchisor and the private institutions as franchisees. Lately, I've been arguing that the franchisees are rogue franchisees, and we should basically eliminate the franchise arrangement and bring them back in-house and make them basically branches um, of the public uh, rather than franchisees of the public. All of that, I think, is critical to do. A key point that I'm, I'm always keen to make is that we would have reason to do that even if there weren't a Green New Deal. And we would have, right, and we would also have reason to do a Green New Deal even if any kind of, no kind of public banking was possible. Uh, And in that sense, the two things Mm -hmm. are independent. That being said, um, once you realize that the financial system really is a public-private franchise arrangement and that the resource that is franchised is the monetized full faith and credit of the sovereign, then you recognize in that very realization that the how do you pay for it question is not a real question. Exactly. You pay for it like you pay for everything, right? Nobody asks how do you pay for defense, how do you pay right. for all these other exactly. those tax cuts. They only ask when you want to do something that's humane and decent and planet-saving, and the answer should yeah. be the same. We'll pay for it the same way you paid for all that crap that you bought, right, right, um, right. except this time it's going to be something healthy, right? Um, yeah. the only, you know, there's, there's no constraint, right? You don't have to raise money in order to spend it. We actually spend it into existence. The only of real course. constraint yes. is the yes. so-called inflation constraint. And I don't know if you've checked recently, but there's not been inflation in this country for 40 years. Um, And the Fed has been trying for a decade to get the inflation rate up to 2% from below and has only been able to manage that a couple of times. There's no – for a couple of quarters. There's no spread um, to speak of at all between inflation-protected treasury securities and non-inflation-protected treasury securities. So the markets don't see inflation on the horizon. $7 trillion of Republican expenditures on wars and tax.
tax cuts over the last 15 years have not resulted in any uptick of inflation at all. So inflation, I, I recently put out a big Forbes column on this. And I just, I just said inflation is not a thing. To use that current, you know, vernacular, it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. But inflation mm-hmm. is not a thing right now, and how do you pay for it is not a thing either. Uh, and if there ever were to come uh, inflationary pressures, we know how to deal with those. That's of what mass prudential finance yeah. regulation is about, and that's what targeted taxes are about. So yeah. we'll worry yeah. about that Brilliant. if and when it happens. But there's absolutely no sign. There's no reason to anticipate that it's going to happen. So you know, cross the bridge if we come to it. We probably won't even come to it. But if we do, we'll simply walk across it. It's not a yeah. big deal. That's, that's, right. that's, that's the answer you need uh, to give when you get interviewed um, by Fox News, though. That's the can, answer. I, I would like to. Um, we would like to post a link to your article, Bob. You know, we have oh. over thirty thousand uh, viewers, regular viewers, oh, that's on great. our latest oh. headlines, which comes out every week. Wonderful. Which I oh, true. I'll forward it to you. Yeah, oh, okay, that's so great. Nice. Thanks so much. Because, you know, we Wonderful. publish Ellen's yeah. articles, um, every one of her articles. She's on our advisory board. Also, another good one to get, do you know Nomi Prince? Uh, I do, actually. Yeah, yeah we've worked because in uh, office Nomi together, is also yeah. on our advisory board, and uh, oh, that's I think she's, you know, she's just terrific. Mm, no, that's yeah. I, I think so too. Yeah. We've both uh, we've crossed paths over in Bernie Sanders's office together, and, and she's just you know she's a, a national treasure, obviously. Like, she like is, Bernie himself she? is. Yeah, yeah I, I I do hundreds of book reviews. All my book reviews are on SeekingAlpha.com, which is a platform in London with about nine million traders on it. But mm-hmm. they hate my reviews. All my book reviews are about <laughs> books like um, Nomi Prince, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all the ones really uh, critiquing uh, the current, uh, you know, financialization and you know, and how to reform the capital markets and the financial mm-hmm. system. So, you know, Mariana Mazzucato, I just, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, her wonderful book, you know, The mm-hmm. uh, Entrepreneurial The Value of Everything. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I've just That's done The Value book. of Everything, too. Yeah, amazing yeah. woman. She's very hard to get to, though. I mean, she's such a she's superstar. Yeah, she's a dear friend as well. We kind of jokingly call each other brother and sister because we're sort of always on the same side of these these various things, um, and we're often at the same conferences. She's and the amazing. Life, but, but you're right; she's hard to keep up with. Excellent. She's a real yeah. uh, a real dynamo. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of allies out there. Oh yeah. Yes, yeah. We're all a lot the real of key is to get us all together. Thrilled. That, yeah. Yes, that mm-hmm. People are coming anytime, out of the woodwork anytime people want to, to do make a their retreat. contributions. We can do a retreat at my place here in St. Augustine, Florida. Ethical Markets has a library and conference center here. We have 8,000 volumes all online with the Schumacher Library. And oh, uh, basically, I have attended. Yes. We, now, and when so Ellen very, and I were there. Yeah. They're very nice, aren't they, our meetings? Mm-hmm. And really very are. nurturing. They really yeah. are. So anytime, literally... Bob, anytime anyone wants a break in Florida, come here and um, you know uh, and do your retreat here. We, we're we're oh, best with about twenty people, you know. Mm. Oh, that would be great. People, yeah. You know, we, you, you lose thing. the opportunity for real dialogue. Think and feel tank, you know. But I want to uh, come around to making a point, uh, Bob, on what you were saying just before about when it comes to matters of 
mass destruction, the money is found instantly. And when it comes mm-hmm. to good humanitarian things, people are always scratching their heads. Where are we going to find the money? Well, oh, while yeah. you two were, yeah. you know, what do you make of that? Well, this is what I make. While you two were busy studying economics, I was busy studying psychology and sociology. Mm-hmm. And so, what I have found is that there is a. On one hand, there is a negative bias to the brain, and that's a survival matter, and it's Mm -hmm. there. But with higher-level mentation, we're able to see when that bias is Mm -hmm. getting in our way, and we can clear Mm -hmm. it consciously, deliberately, and make way for, let's call it, the good, the humanitarian Mm -hmm. and the creative cycle, if you will, instead of the destructive. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. in other words, at the end of the day, it is my supposition that we are ultimately dealing, it looks like an economic issue, it looks like this, it looks like that. We're dealing with a very foundational psychological issue that has to do, Mm -hmm. well, you mentioned Freud before, Hazel, so coming back (laughs) around, we're really dealing with a mother-father issue that has not gotten resolved, and it gets expressed through the madness of our body politic and body economic and people like mm-hmm. us and many of our friends and colleagues are seeking deeply to do something profound about it. Wow. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting you talk about the mommy-daddy thing. I have yes. a, an article that I, I will send you both, which is going to be published in a couple of weeks um, in, in the journal called Cadmus, which is our partner, the World Academy of Art and Science, and it's called mm-hmm. The Politics of Connectivity. And I try to look at all of this evolution of the us and them, um, the other, yes. and how it Polarity. all began in our tribal days, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how with, uh, as you say, um, once we examine all of these things with our wonderful new forebrains um, and, yes. and learn, you know, how to control the amygdala, uh, we can evolve. And, you know, this group that I've been a member of for years and years called the Darwin Project, where, you know, looking at Darwin's actual notebooks, we all know now, and I reported this in a book I I wrote in 2009, um, that basically uh, that that, um, poisonous phrase, the the survival of the fittest, the the economist magazine, did they actually did a mea culpa editorial at the end of 2006 saying that we're sorry that we attributed that to Charles Darwin, who was talking about something rather different, natural selection. And basically, it was Herbert Spencer who uh, wrote for The Economist. He was was a sociologist, uh, as you know, uh, and he wrote for The Economist. And he was the one that came up with that phrase, the survival of the fittest. And so, you know, uh, what we tried Yeah, I mean, what we've tried to do, you know, is uh, to um, showcase um, Professor Lynn Stout's work on the Mm -hmm. myth of shareholder value. You know, all Mm -hmm. that is based on Adam Smith's later book, you know, Mm -hmm. The the Wealth of Nations. Theory of the Moral Sentiments. Oh, oh, the Wealth of Ways, yeah. 
you know, the theory of moral sentiments, uh, you know, right. which was written 10 years before when it was 1757. And so mm-hmm. even all of that is taught wrongly at business schools. I mean, it blows oh, my yeah. mind. Yeah, it's shocking. Quite it is. our friend uh, in Denmark, Hazel, uh, Ross... Um, oh, Ross Jackson? Name. Ross Jackson. Ross Jackson, yeah. the introduction yeah. for his uh, book about Wall Street. Um, oh, yes. Right. Uh, uh, I wrote, that's right. I wrote the introduction to that. Uh, and that, that was yeah. called... Uh, but I'm bringing uh, him up because he was educating me about the real meaning of Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. Yeah. Which is yeah. Nothing is, mm-hmm. it is conveniently um, interpreted by, yeah. you know, certain um, neoliberal and... Uh, also Republican types of uh, economists. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, Ross uh, had those two hedge funds, the guy hedge funds, which threw off yeah. about $15 million, which is he used to fund all these ecological communities around the world. Yeah. He and his wife, who Eco-villages. died a couple of years ago, Hilda, were very dear friends oh. of mine. And, uh, you know, basically there's all... I mean, Ross is a Canadian mathematician. And, uh, you know, there's brilliant people just everywhere. And and I feel so fortunate, you know, all of my travels, Mm -hmm. that that I was connecting with all of these people, you know. And that's Mm -hmm. the great thing about writing books, you know, is that you connect with all these incredible, interesting people. And then, you know, I got them all rounded up on my global advisory board. I'm so grateful. I, I, would, mm-hmm. I would love to invite you to, you, uh, uh, Bob, you don't have to do anything because we don't meet, you know, we're global, um, and there, mm-hmm. there are no, no uh, fiduciary responsibilities. All you have to do um, is to write occasional comments for our latest headlines and let us know mm-hmm. stories that we ought to be covering and we're missing. Oh, I well, love that. I love oh, that. Oh, great. Well, we actually, all of us meet, Bob, <laughs> in Hazel's backyard once a year. From yes. all over oh, the world. Oh, how cool. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. kidding you. <laughs> but well, no, it's you know, truly our, wonderful our, to be our Brazilian, our Brazilian partners do. And right <clears> now, <throat> uh, one of our Brazilian partners, Ladislau Dobor, has written a book um, about the tragedy that happened in Brazil where all mm-hmm. of these European and North American banks bought up their banks. And I remember they had a lot of really good banks there and turned them into cash cows and, you know, just absolutely went crazy with, um, with consumer loans, monthly mm-hmm. consumer loans. And uh, the, mm-hmm. the indebted, the consumer sector, oh, oh God, what a horrible story. I mean, I, I'm writing a review of it right now. But uh, the Brazilian situation um, is, is so tragic right now um, mm-hmm. that... Um, well, uh, I don't know with their presidents. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to come out. Who uh, yeah. thinks he's kind of a mini-Trump? Yeah. Indeed, yeah, except the difference is that he has control over the Amazon. 
Oh, it's and, terrible. Uh, it is terrible. <clears throat> he is and you know Marina Silva, who was also a friend of yes, ours, I who do. ran for yeah. the Green Party. I kept on saying to my Brazilian partners, you know, well, look, you know, doesn't can't we get enough people to vote for Marina Silva, um, you know, mm-hmm. to head off this guy? But yeah. oh God, it was, I think it was, you know, I mean, uh, it, the whole corruption thing. Um, yes, it was terrible, but I mean, we have. The same kind of corruption. I mean, that's one of the things I think that's going to bring down the current administration is the level of corruption in all of the cabinet offices. I mean, it's yeah. mind-blowing. It's shocking. It's almost yeah. every single cabinet member is showing the, uh, you know, the markers of corruption of virtually it's every single one yeah, since unbelievable. the administration began. Yes, the uh, Trump swamp. It's an extraordinary situation, for sure. Indeed. But coming back around here uh, to the good work that's being done in the name of the Green New Deal, on a psychological level, I would also like to say, because that really is my diagnosis of why money is found for one and one side of the life of life and not on the other very quickly, although Mm -hmm. with your good mathematics and, and, you know, um, promoting the way money really does come forward is changing Mm -hmm. things and will continue to Mm -hmm. change things. Um, I want to also just say that there is a tremendous momentum that I see in the groups that I'm part of. For instance, the Pachamama Alliance, just to mention one, is a group that Mm -hmm. is very committed to global education about every type of justice needed, starting with environmental justice and working across Mm -hmm. the board to social, political, and economic. And I'm Mm -hmm. just telling you, there is truly an upsurge that I see from my vantage point of a better world and my colleagues and friends and tremendous excitement about what is happening and what is afoot with the promise right. of a Green New Deal, Bob. And uh, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, here at A Better World, we're just interested in helping to support that momentum as best as possible. Mm-hmm. So just so oh, glad yeah. to have you on again. And I would, I really think that this needs to be a series so we can kind of touch base with you and uh, bring forward the uh, new and good news about, about Sounds good to me. progress here. Oh, All yeah. right, so and, and I'm so happy to uh, also post this, uh, Mitchell, this uh, interview. And Excellent. let's, uh, you know, happy to do that and uh, post a link uh, to Bob's article in Forbes. Thank you. That's great. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Absolutely. That would be great. Well, thank you both yeah. so much, Bob Hockett and Hazel Henderson, for being guests today in today's Green New Deal Roundtable. And, uh, sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and experience with uh, with our audience. It's uh, truly invaluable. So, thanks, thanks so much. much. Thanks both Take of you. Care. Enjoy. Absolutely. All okay. the best. You too. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Wow. That was a real learning experience for one and all, and I would also say a true energetic uh, uplift as well as uh, – great minds come together here and great spirits who are truly committed to changing the course of things and giving us the potential for a new destiny. 
So I want to thank all of you for listening again and know that there will be more of this kind of reportage here at A Better World and sharing uh, good cheer as well as the sobriety of our real situation. We're not about to skip over that, not for one moment. Uh, in fact, all these conversations are, as you could tell from the beginning of today's roundtable, grounded in the true observable and scientific reality, uh, scientifically proven reality of what it is we have done, anthropogenic, global warming, and as Dar Jamal calls it, uh, climate disruption. Um, I call it actually climate catastrophe, CC, not credit card, climate catastrophe. And that doesn't mean we cannot overcome catastrophes because we can. But I think that that is really the more accurate name. Um, If we didn't go with Robin Williams' wonderful phrase of global grilling. (laughs) Oh, my God. We will never have enough good humor to keep us going on the straight and narrow of what it is that needs to be done. So, again, thank you all. Uh, Do remember that we are a 501c3, a nonprofit organization, and we are able to continue to sustain and thrive based on your kind donations and contributions. It is all tax deductible. For more information about that and to make suggestions and give us your feedback, which is wholly, wholly welcome, please write an email to me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. And visit our website, abetterworld.tv, triple W dot, of course, abetterworld.tv and Sign up for our free newsletter if you don't already receive it. And pass these programs, these podcasts, around to your friends and your colleagues so more and more people can really get the benefit of this kind of intelligence and creative conversation which is taking place to create a better world. Thanks again for joining. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.